The title of this evening's talk is Through the Looking Glass, the Reality of Not-Self. And the looking glass um, is a reflecting mirror, we could say, that one can step into, as in the story of Alice in Wonderland. Over a period of years uh, during my childhood and then on through and into the teen years, through adolescence and then on into the teen years, I had a recurring dream many times, many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, back and back, smaller and smaller. Myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself looking at myself in the mirror, endlessly. I was often quite amazed and fascinated and at times intrigued with this dream. And if I thought about it very much, I would feel somewhat perplexed by it. But mostly I was really quite interested with the many times that it occurred. And I was interested enough that it's really the only dream that I clearly remember experiencing from my early years. The dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life. Beginning when at the age of 16, I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write in high school about religions other than Judeo-Christian. And right then, I had a distinct feeling of touching into a deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking into the mirror, or looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, became the gist of the direction that my life has followed since. This evening we'll explore the not-self-nature of it all. The reality that for many people seems the most difficult to touch, to know, and, and to live. And for some, though it might be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of not-self may often be fraught with a subtle or more overt fear. In its essence, this truth is so basic, so simple, that with even just a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that 
so many of us are so fearful of stepping through or lifting the veil of concept, lifting the veil of an idea, of belief that separates us from the reality of not-self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid, and even static me, I, them, him, her, that, you, it. Within the context of our immediate bodily and mental experience and within the imagined context of the possible future or the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks asks us to let go of attachment to all of our clung to and cherished hopes and fears and beliefs, to relinquish the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished self-identities. It's really important, though, to recognize that in relinquishing our attachments, we're not asked to throw our self out. We're not asked to throw ourself away. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to really just simply recognize that everything we think of as ourself, everything we believe to be ourself, everything that we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for a moment. What we call our self, on one level, is a subtle and yet clearly discernible active phenomena or process that we can sense, feel, see, and know directly through our practice. One aspect of this that's readily available to know experientially is the body as a process process made up of many elements. The earth element, with its characteristics of hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The water element, with its characteristics of flowing and cohesion. The fire element, with its characteristics of heat and coolness. And the air or the wind element, with its characteristics of supporting and pushing. 
with each and all of these elements being in constant flux in and of themselves and in relationship with each other. Our so-called self as our body or my body is in constant flux. The Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. So, in truth, there's really nothing to attach to, nothing to cling to. And as we come to know this to whatever degree, we really begin to understand, little by little, that essentially all of the Buddha's teachings and practices lead to this. The essential aim of the teachings and practices is to look in the mirror at ourself and look with such sincerity and humility and willingness that we begin to see our self more accurately. We begin to see through ourself, we could say, by directly and experientially seeing, experiencing things in themselves without the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're identified with them. It's actually quite simple. Maybe not so easy, but really quite simple. We're sitting here in retreat. Or we're at work, busy doing or sitting at our desk. Or we're at home, sitting on the couch. Pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Heaviness or lightness is just heaviness or lightness. Red or yellow is just simply red or yellow. Rising and falling is merely rising and falling. Memory is just memory. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these things, the, these occurrences, are merely, are just themselves. And as the great uh, Thai master, meditation master Ajahn Chah said, there are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person. In the realm of conditional existence, there's no real, no true sustaining happiness. And in the same vein, we could say that there's no real sustaining suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. 
It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish, that we experience confusion. An ancient uh, Chinese sage, Nanshin, said this. He said, by not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. And the Buddha in a teaching that he offered to his student, Megiya, said this, Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megiya, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. We experience this and that, everything, anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only so much? Can we look into the mirror of ourself without claiming ownership, without investing in interpretation, without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we see? So for instance, we think in terms of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my breath, my joy, my fear, my friends, my house. This is some of how we create self again and again. This is how we become, how we know self. The Buddha had a pretty amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that their not-self is seeing self. The looking glass of the Dhamma, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror. Myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing the truth of self, looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to investigate with willingness and with humility, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there is a self and that things belong to self will gradually untangle, will come undone, so to say. 
And with, when this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally, steadily increase. I'd like to share some words with you from a woman named Vimala Thakkar. Vimala Thakkar was one of Krishnamurti's closest uh, students. And she was a, quite a profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right. And this is, uh, she's no longer alive, but this is what she had to say on a very essential ingredient of our practice. This is what she had to say about humility. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer. The austerity of humility. To see things as they are to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of these states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she said. Can we observe experience, inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but to connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention. It's only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what is being observed what is being investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely rising and falling. Merely heat. Merely an ache in the chest or a tingling moving through the body. Merely a thought arising and passing. No duality as it's sometimes spoken of. Not two. Just this present moment being known just as it is. Only by training oneself again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts, bodily sensations, and other sense door experiences, feelings, mind states, and perceptions as mere impersonal processes, can the power of a deeply rooted 
egocentric thought, habit, and self-centered inclination be loosened, reduced, relinquished, and at some point finally eliminated. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self, that we come to know not-self. And then, for just a moment or two, and eventually for longer, and then eventually, finally, it's not all about me. And the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine, that's based, in fact, in the fear of losing something. For a moment, there's nothing, no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind, is free. And some words from the Buddha. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or me or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever has practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. It's a heavy load, a burden to carry your self around. The body, the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all of the hopes, all of the fears. We shoulder a heavy burden carrying around all of the things of life in the form of thoughts and feelings, various opinions, perceptions, beliefs, believing that they're mine, me, myself. There's a a kind of sting that we feel in hauling around all of the permutations of this burden with a sense of ownership and a sense of identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake. But if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake. But the poison hasn't touched you, hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for, the peace, for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as it's appropriate. We keep looking and seeing, living life. And in fact, living much more freshly and fully in the immediacy of here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher, 
here on retreat and in our life outside of a retreat setting. And a poem by Buddhist poet uh, Jane Hirschfield. She calls it, Only when I am quiet and do not speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy the scissors and spoons, the blue mug, hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking, the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not the false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other act of shying, of pelted rocks. No, not that. For I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off if I glimpse for even an instant the actual instant. As if they believed it possible, I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice as we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, that even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent elements and processes. So, for instance, do I reside in the intestines or the rumbling sensations therein? Am I in the thigh bone or the skin or the head hair or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath at the nostrils, me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot moving through space? Or in the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend? You might think, okay, maybe I'm not the foot. Not the sensation of the in-breath. But certainly my mind. Certainly my conscious consciousness is me. I mean, without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? I think it's quite fair to say that one of the things most of us cling to most tenaciously 
and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. But the truth is that the very nature of mind itself is that it's unformed, unborn. Look into your own mind, heart, heart mind, right now for just a moment. Maybe for a moment you sense and see its empty nature. Like experiencing zero, as one of my Burmese teachers, Pawak Sayadaw, says. In the opening lines of a book by mathematician Robert Kaplan, he says, When you look at zero, you see nothing. Look through it, and you see the world. And so the Buddha, coming directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary way of thinking about things upside down, we could say. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomenon. It too arises and passes away, moment by moment, like every other conditioned phenomena. And this can actually be experienced directly through very deep, concentrated, mindful practice. Consciousness is dependent on contact with some object through one of the six sense doors. No matter how gross or how subtle that object might be. It too is dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises because of this contact. It too is dependent on the mental labels and constructs and clinging that arises in the conscious mind through contact. To make this very clear to his students, the Buddha spoke quite specifically about the six doors of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness mind phenomena, consciousness. A short conversation between the Buddha and his uh, chief disciple, Ananda. And this is from the Samyutta Nikaya. And it's titled, Empty is the World. And the... um, Venerable Ananda is speaking to the Buddha. He said, Venerable Sir, 
It said, empty is the world, empty is the world. In what way is it said, empty is the world? And the Buddha responds, it is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it said, empty is the world. And what is empty of self and what belongs and what belongs to self? The I, Ananda, is empty of self and what belongs to self. Forms are empty of self and what belongs to self. I consciousness, I contact, and the Buddha goes on through each of the six sense door consciousnesses in this way, ending with mind consciousness. And whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. That too is empty of self and what belongs to self. It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said, empty is the world. And from the perspective of an 8th century Chinese sage, another Dhamma mirror, Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I am of the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there is really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death and no absolute life. And a wonderfully simple poem by contemporary Buddhist poet Jim Harrison. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow, to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself, in ceaseless flow. As we move uh, towards the last part of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer two brief guided meditations, beginning with the possibility of the mind opening to an image in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. And if an image doesn't come easily for you, please don't struggle. Just simply allow a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words.
So it's helpful if you begin by closing your eyes. Take a deep breath or two and relax. And visualizing or in some way sensing an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. Letting this really fill your mind, letting it fill your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net while at the same time its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, this felt sense, Each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all the gems at all of the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. And now, just simply letting the image go, letting the felt sense dissolve. the intricately interwoven tapestry of life, with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of not-self. This is the ground of understanding, not self, that compassion springs from. 
as awakening beings, I'm sure that many of you find that more and more often you act only from the heart of compassion because of the growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there's only relationship. There's only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. There's no separate, no isolated, independent you. No separate me. And from Shanti Deva, 8th century Buddhist monk. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And now the second guided meditation. And again, it's helpful if you let your eyes close and if the body's tensed up a bit, allow it to relax again, take a breath or two. In the mind's eye, the eye of wisdom, which is centered in the heart. Visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. and relaxing and staying open and present with this. And now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. The clouds are moving, changing shape, dissolving, new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, let the mind, the heart, rest in the openness of the sky, the vast openness, not fixating on any cloud, just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. 
if at any point all of the clouds disappear, simply allow the heart to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless, sky-like space. And now let the image or the felt sense just fade away, let it dissolve. And just sit for a moment letting the heart, the mind, open wide, allowing awareness to be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. Who's aware? Who knows? Now bringing the attention back into the body in an easy way, back to the breath, back to hearing. and just sitting quietly for a moment. As we learn to step back and open up and face into the looking glass, with willingness and humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things. The vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in and we keep looking. Our practice is to keep looking through the mirror, the clear mirror of the Dhamma. We see that everything, all things are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there's no thing that satisfies. There's no thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease in a sustaining way. We understand that we really can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or the world around us to render us really fully and truly happy and at ease. And so we continue to just simply humbly look into the mirror at ourself, going back and back into the looking glass of self, 
mindful awareness becomes clearer and more open, more all-encompassing, more spacious. Instead of finding some solid, static, separate something, or some solid rendition of me, some solid rendition of I, some fixed eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this bright, vital spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. In this, there's no solid, separate I or other. In this essential emptiness, there's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease, even in the midst of the arising, changing, and ceasing happenings of life within us and life all around us. As long as we fixedly reside mentally in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems, really the greatest problems, the greatest suffering we experience. We have a sense of being separate, being an isolated, solid, static, separate entity. This is really the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering, the core loneliness that human beings feel. I'd like to share a a story with you. It's a, a true story about a friend of mine. This friend was um, suffering with this core loneliness. And so he decided to um, seek the help of a therapist for the first time in his life uh, around the age of 40. And with advice from friends, he uh, picked a therapist who had a Buddhist spiritual orientation. When he called to make an appointment Uh, he was told by the secretary that it would be helpful if he brought some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his concern with him for the first therapy session. And so uh, this man arrived at the therapist's office with a huge load of baggage of all different sizes and shapes and colors. And he set them down in the waiting room. And then he went back to his car and got another load of baggage of all different sizes, shapes, and colors. And he piled these on top of the first load in the waiting room. And uh, he told me, and he also told the therapist he told me, that he had to go around collecting baggage from friends and families members because he said he didn't have enough of his own. So it came time for him to go into the therapist's office, and he, of course, took in all of his baggage, 
piled it up between him and the therapist. And at some point during this first therapy session, the therapist in her wisdom, really great wisdom, asked my friend to open up all of the baggage that he'd brought in with him, which he did. He did it, and he found out there was nothing inside any of it. A very wise therapist. (laughs) It's really not every uh, client or patient that you could do this with. But somehow she understood or figured out that this man was really ready for such what we could call a pointing out. When we begin to taste the truth of not-self, when we touch into this simple reality, often at first there can be a kind of poignancy. And then at some point there can be a sense of entering into a measureless beauty. And often there's a feeling of a great relief like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and understand the load and its nature and just simply set it down. And in relationship relationship to this, I'd like to... uh, uh, offer you an old story that I, it's an old teaching story that I like a lot. It's the story of a woman who had practiced for many, many years and had had some quite powerful and expansive and even some illuminating experiences. But still, she felt that she hadn't really reached the goal. And she was getting up in years and feeling that there really wasn't very much time left. And she so wanted freedom in this lifetime. So she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one who she had heard was able to turn the mind, turn the heart to the truth. As she was nearing the end of her quite arduous hike up the mountain, An old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down the mountain. And just as he passed, the woman stopped and called out to him. And he stopped and he turned towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived on top of the mountain. And she explained that she was on her way up to see this being because she wanted really to know the deepest truth. She wanted to know ultimate wisdom, the ultimate wisdom, so that she could be really fully awakened and free in this very lifetime. She explained that she wanted to awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion and anguish and striving. She told this man, this old man who was going down the mountain, that she'd heard that the wise one on the top of the mountain might be the one to reveal this to her. Well, the old man stood and listened, 
stood very still and listened. And then he looked at her briefly, looked right at her briefly. And then, taking his time, he slowly turned around and continued just a few steps down the mountain. And then he stopped again and briefly stood still and then slowly again turned around towards the woman. And then he very carefully and very slowly took the satchel off his back, set it down on the ground, turned around again, and walked on down the mountain towards the village. Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. We keep exploring, living life, seeing and understanding. And in fact, living life more freshly and fully right here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, all things, and is the relative aspect of understanding not self. This is what connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world. In closing the talk this evening with two short pieces from a particular collection called the Udana, the Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. In the first piece, seclusion is happiness for one content, who knows the Dhamma, who has seen, Friendliness towards the world is happiness for those whose hearts bend kindly to all beings. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of the conceit, I am, that's the greatest happiness of all. And the second teaching from the Buddha, from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha, this is a teaching that he uh, uh, offered to his, uh, one of his disciples by the name of Bahia. <clears throat> In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. 
in the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus you should see that, indeed, there is no thing here. This bahia is how you should train yourself. Since bahia, there is for you in the seen only the seen, in the heard only the heard, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here, you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.